The Battle of Rourke's Drift is an emblematic tale in the history of British colonialism. It's a case study of different combat tactics used by technologically asymmetric armies and a parable about the cost of conquest. In today's film, a surprisingly neutral depiction of the events of the battle, the British Redcoats are vastly outnumbered and defend their position against 4,000 Zulu warriors, led by Lieutenants Gonville Bromhead, played by Michael Caine, and John Chard, played by Stanley Barker, the British use volley fire against the Zulu bullhorn tactic. In the end, after extensive casualties on both sides, the Zulu army sings to the diminished and desperate British unit, saluting their bravery. The Zulu army leaves the redoubt, sparing the surviving redcoats. This classic film has had immeasurable cultural influence, inspiring Africa Bambata to found the universal Zulu nation in the 70s, as well as inspiring the combat scenes in Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, and Ridley Scott's Gladiator. A prayer is as good as a bayonet on a day like this, when the Friendly Fire podcast takes on the 1964 film, Zulu. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the show with the hosts who are making a desperate last stand after the other 1,200 podcasters fell in battle. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. I'm John Roderick. I'm Harry Reasoner. Can I be Leslie Stahl? <laughs> Leslie Stahl's still in the game. She has that right? Still alive? Battle. Yeah. <laughs> She's a little bit more formidable than the armies of the Zulu nation. Uh, we, we watched the movie Zulu today, 1964 film. This is a little bit different of a war movie than we've seen so far on our show, isn't it? Our heroes are colonialists, which I think in, uh, in the modern parlance could be deemed problematic. Did you have a hard time rooting for the colonialists? I kind of did. Uh-huh. I did too. I mean, I think that it's an interesting take from that standpoint though because I mean, this movie is was made, you know, at a, at a time when the colonialist wasn't the like knee-jerk bad guy, and I don't mm. think that it makes them out to be heroes just so much as like people who are part of a system doing a thing. Like like their colonialism is not is not portrayed as heroic and I don't think that the Zulus are portrayed as evil either. Like, I mean, maybe I'm being too kind, but yeah, to use like the sports comparison, it's like rooting for laundry. Like you're, you're right. Like the colonialism isn't so overt as it is just a declaration of what the sides are. It doesn't feel like a very political movie. It's, it's more of a outgunned movie. Yeah, it's a last it's a last stand movie. That that uh rooting for laundry thing, is that a sports center reference? I didn't get that at all, but but uh but I I like it. It has a nice there's a nice sort of yeah, I'm going to start saying rooting for laundry even not understanding what you're talking about. <laughs> I think that's a Seinfeld reference. Oh, Seinfeld. Also don't know what you're talking about. Oh, that's terrific. Mulva. I I feel like not only is it not pro-colonialism, but the, there's a subtle it's 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 more subtle than we're used to, um, because these days every political message is delivered with a cudgel. Mm. Yeah, you couldn't you couldn't make this movie today and have the 
British be like the protagonists in any way, right? Right. But but in fact, every all of the British are super ambivalent about being there. They don't mm-hmm. believe that it's a just cause. Everyone that speaks at all about about their presence there says, why are we here? This is idiotic. Be quiet now, will you? There's a good gentleman. You'll upset the lads. And I think at the at the time this movie was made, although it was made in apartheid South Africa, I mean, 1964 was also the the high watermark of the civil rights movement, not just in the U.S., but in Britain. I think probably the way this movie was received at the time was really demystifying, you know, and really portraying it not as this thing that has been minted on commemorative coins for 80 years, (laughs) um, but as a thing that's like gross. One thing that really struck me the last time I had uh, an afternoon to hang out in London was just walking around. That's not where I thought that sentence was going to (laughs) go. Walking around the center of the city, there's all these monuments to these kinds of battles, you know, these like totally, you know, like colonial battles, wars of adventure that they've commemorated the loss of life of British soldiers in. And, and, uh, you know, right now we're, we're having this process in this country of like taking down Confederate monuments in certain parts of the South because the political wind has shifted and it seems to us that it's not uh, something we want to commemorate. <laughs> uh, or that uh, we're commemorating the wrong things. Right, yeah, yeah we're commemorating traitors who fought on the side of racism (laughs) (laughs) right well and also i think the the most persuasive case about that was made by the mayor of louis of uh, new orleans who said we didn't erect these statues at the time these statues were erected by racists dozens of years later right specifically to to make a racist statement you know like these aren't war monuments as much as they are monuments to the Ku Klux Klan in the twenties or whoever it was that, that passed the hat to pay for them. And I'm really just against racist directions of any kind. <laughs> I think you better get them out of here. You're giving me an order, old boy. Well, how much do you guys know about the context of the Zulu wars? I read a little bit about it. The, it seemed like, uh, from what I read, the British actually had a, a treaty with the Zulus and weren't invading like they had they had some kind of agreed upon boundaries in South Africa but it's always been a little confusing to me like the boers are also there and they're like other white people that also live in South Africa that's right <laughs> that's sure it remains confusing to this day <laughs> there's the one boar that's that's there in this film kind of mansplaining all of the things that are happening He's like the token exposition boar. But other than that, like the, the rest of the boars are like, yeah, you guys enjoy your little uh, futile last stand. You're all going to die later. That's right. Well, yeah, the boars were the first whites in South Africa as part of the Dutch East Indian Trading Company, which at the time was the largest corporation in the world at the time that they were colonizing South Africa. And they're like Calvinists, right? Oh, yeah. They're like Dutch hyper-Protestants, massive racists. 
If they're Calvinists, aren't they supposed to know how this war ends? <laughs> well, God Aren't knows, they all about Adam. predestination? Yeah, but you can't. That's the thing about predestination. You can't know. If you predestination is such a fucked up doctrine, you <laughs> are either elect or you're not. But God does not reveal that fact to you. If you are elect, you will behave righteously. You can't know whether you're elect or not, but you had better behave righteously, because if you don't, it's clear that you're not. I feel like so many Calvinists just unsubscribed from our podcast. <laughs> But the, so the British were late comers to South Africa and they were trying to impose a kind of Victorian overgovernment to all of these different tribal areas and Boer areas and their British farmers and settlers and the British Empire's idea was that they would combine everything into this confederation of states and they had just had tremendous success doing this in Canada, right? They put the French and the, they got all these different sort of provincial ideas of Canada and combined them into an administrative area. And they were like, we can do this everywhere. This is, this is our new model. We're going to apply this in South Africa too. But the Boers didn't want it and the Zulus didn't want it. And even the British there didn't want it. So it was, a, it was really a thing that was coming down from the head office. Yeah. It took a century for the world to get hip to how great Canada is politically. <laughs> <laughs> they were just too early to the game. But it was different. Like the Boers didn't want to be ruled by the English. And the Zulus were doing just fine without the pith helmets. And none of the British that were there were that into it either. It was like, we don't want to go across that river and tell people what to do. Please leave us alone. But the context of this event, the day before the events depicted in this movie, the British expeditionary force working kind of rogue under a commander who was sort of disobeying orders, marched into Zulu territory and got their asses handed to them by the Zulus in what was, I think at the time, the worst defeat ever suffered by the British Empire. Like, total massacre. Thousands of British soldiers killed by Zulus. So this little last stand happened the day after. And the reason it became such a big part of British culture was that when the word got back to London, it was a situation where I was like, well, we could report the most massive defeat that ever happened to us, or we could really shine a light on this amazing little hardy group of steadfast dudes <laughs> only a few hundred miles away or not even that. It was like 40 miles away. And these guys made a heroic last stand. Which one do you think we should talk about? <laughs> so it was really like image and, management. It was spin. Absolutely. The standoff was strategically completely unimportant. This little watering hole outpost was only there because it was a river crossing it's meaningless, but it became a big part of the British idea of itself because it turned their worst defeat ever into something that they could, you know, they could give 11 Victoria crosses or whatever to these, you know, this tiny group of guys that survived. 
Welcome back to Fireside Chat on KMAX. With me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the West Coast, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Go ahead, caller. Hey, uh, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover artists and albums that I've never heard of. Yeah, man. Sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks every week. Myself and I'm Morgan Rhodes and my co-host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed their lives. Guests like Moby, Open Mike Eagle, talk about albums by Prince, Joni Mitchell, and so much more. Yo, what's that show called again? Heat Rocks, deep dives into hot records. Every Thursday on Maximum Fun. Hi, I'm Renee Colbert. I'm Alexis Preston. And we're the hosts of the smash hit podcast, Can I Pet Your Dog? Now, Alexis. Yes. We got big news. Uh Uh-oh. Since last we did a promo, our dogs have become famous. World famous. World, like, stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Second big news. Mm -hmm. The reviews are in. Mm Mm-hmm. Take yourself to Apple Podcasts. You know what you're going to hear? We're happy. It's true. We're a delight. A great distraction from the world. I like that part a lot. So if that's what you guys are looking for, mm-hmm. you got to check out our show. But what else can they expect? We've got dog tech, dog news, celebrities with their dogs, all dog things. All the dog things. So if that interests you, well, get yourself on over to Maximum Fun every Tuesday. Yeah, yeah so the story of the film is like... I think like 4,000 Zulu warriors converge on this field hospital slash Swedish religious mission that the British are posted at. And the film pretty much takes place over the course of a day, a night, and the following day as they defend themselves, as the British defend themselves from this totally overwhelming force that has, you know, seized British rifles, like they, um, I guess, are are not drilled in the volley fire technique, but uh, you know they're shooting back. It's not it's not all spears and, and shields. It's got to feel good to have a gun if you're a Zulu warrior. I think that was exciting. <laughs> I, I think that the problem uh, was that they did that they were not very accurate shooters, so the guns were mostly harassing fire. Like I say, the day before, Zulu technology was sufficient to kill couple thousand british guys so yeah i mean it's not that that vastly different like i mean it's it's not like um predator drone versus guy with sword (laughs) yeah and it totally didn't turn the tide either like like as soon as you see a zulu with a gun that at that moment i was thinking well now they're really fucked but it was really just sort of a blip on the overall horror of what they were confronting like the thing that made the Zulu the most terrifying to me wasn't necessarily their numbers. It's It was the singing and the banging of shields. Like, that part must have been so terrifying. Like, you can see their numbers, but to hear their numbers presents such a different kind of shock to me. It's such an interesting thing in this film how the sound can both be really amazing and really bad because they do so much about the psychology of having this huge army descending on them, you know, hearing them from far away, the, you know, the sound of them singing like up on the, on the Hills is like chilling to these British soldiers. But then when they get into the thick of battle, like people are stabbing each other and there will be no sound effect to, to like add impact to the, bayonet clearly just going under somebody's armpit 
After the 14th Wilhelm scream, it sort of loses its power. <laughs> is that a sports center reference? What's a Wilhelm scream? The Wilhelm scream is a classic movie sound that has been used for like a hundred years. It's the sound that is often laid in when someone is, is shot and then falls off of a roof or off of a cliff. We'll have our talented editor, Rob Schulte, yeah. drop one in right here. And it's become kind of a trope that even modern movie, movies use. Yeah, it's fun to hear a Wilhelm scream. You know, yeah. you, you hear it like once a movie and it's always fun. I for sure that was the hardest part of this movie for me was you, you very seldom see movies where bayoneting is a ma- is a major part of the war scene. Mm. You know, it's like there are bayonet charges in films, but mostly the bayoneting is done once, right? Like that you charge out of your trench, a couple of guys get bayoneted and then it's back to shooting. But this movie had a lot of bayoneting because it's, I mean, at the time it took a full minute to reload your gun. Right. And that's why the volley fire thing was kind of the only way they could do it. But there was so much bayoneting in this film and it was so unrealistically done over yeah. and over. It's just like Wilhelm screams and just like rubber knives or whatever it was they were doing. And it, it, you can just see the thought bubble over everybody's head as they're portraying these scenes. Like, I really hope I don't accidentally stab one of these guys. Cause even though this is a fake bayonet, it could really hurt somebody if they like caught it to the temple while f- flailing around. I mean, wh- we just watched Braveheart and there's, that's all hand to hand combat, but it's filmed in that jerky camera flying around implied contact. Right. Or it's filmed wide enough that, you know, you, the, the chaos of it kind of covers up how little contact is actually taking place. This movie, because it is 150 on 4,000, the, uh, the little compound that they're defending is small, and the camera has to be close to basically every battle. One other thing they do compositionally, in addition to, like, seeing over the shoulder of the red coat uh, stabbing at a Zulu is flipping that composition so that you see the stabs come at the camera and just below it. Like, there's a lot of stabbing at the viewer in this film. I thought that made it look a lot different from the films that we've seen before. You know, like... The Zulu stabbing cam, under. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that, that also did not help how fake the action scenes looked because it's just a guy standing there thrusting... <laughs> I hate you guys. (laughs) I hate you guys. See the thought bubble over John Roderick's head as he thinks ruefully about the decision to start a podcast with these two idiots. I'm like, (laughs) this movie was really lauded in its time. Did you guys detect? that what what why it was considered so beautiful and so groundbreaking it was certainly beautiful to me like the the super scope width of the frame the color i thought it was beautiful for a film of its age for sure i thought it looked awesome i mean you could judge it for how sharp and crisp the color looks and how interesting the compositions are 
while at the same time hating how they chose to block fight scenes. The the way the red jackets pop against the green fields and like really vividly blue skies is just amazing. And John, this is a super dumb junior high school level question, but is the reason <laughs> the British wore red coats to cover up was it to cover up the blood when they got shot? No, because blood is brown in that context. Blood on the scarecrow, blood on the plow or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, it would come out and stain the jacket just the same. No, I think that, that all that sort of red army uniform, well, the, the idea is just to, to awe. And there wasn't any such thing then, at least, uh, as organized guerrilla fighting. So there's no point in camouflage. Mm. Because that just wasn't a way that, that European empires thought to fight. Boy, I wonder to what degree they regretted that aesthetic decision as soon as boots hit the shore in Africa. Well, really you know, <laughs> as as late as World War One, European armies were arriving on the battlefield in like purple jackets with gold braid on them. I mean, it 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 was it was literally that late before somebody was like, you know, what if we made our uniforms gray? <laughs> Somebody was like, let's get a swatch of trench mud and head down to the Home Depot and see if they can't match that for us. But I think in the American Revolutionary War, the British, in a lot of cases, felt like the the uh, American patriots were unsporting because they shot at them from the tree line instead of coming out and marching in organized ranks and shooting at each other from, from 20 feet away. That's something I always heard in school, and I would think to myself, gosh, the, those, that British army was so silly. But seeing a pretty well-executed couple of scenes of volley fire, in this movie I kind of saw the, the logic of, of the kind of war that they fought. I mean, they really, they really did uh, use this technique well in this film. It's really interesting to see. When they finally were cranking out that volley fire and it felt almost like like a 50-man Gatling gun. Yeah. That was very impressive. Kind of the, the, the war fighting moment. I don't understand why the Zulu commander didn't use fire more as a weapon. I mean, the walls of the compound are made of saltine crackers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fire was effective at one point in this skirmish, like when they burned down the, the house inside the redoubt. That was great. I thought I think they should have gone back to fire as a strategy. Yeah. There's that scene at the beginning where the uh engineer lieutenant heads back to heads back to the camp and he tells the the guy cooking all the soup, Hey, stop cooking that soup and put out those fires. We don't we don't want to give them a gift. And then he like tries to uh play uh, the other lieutenant off of him. Not the best of shots, are they? Maybe something we should talk about is these is these two lieutenants, right? The Michael Caine and what's the other guy's name? Stanley Baker. It's uh, Chard versus Bromhead. They got commissioned like within months of each other. So Baker is like very slightly senior, and but Bromhead has these kind of ideas about his pedigree and 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 I thought it was very interesting that the way they had some kind of obvious points of conflict, but 
managed to really work on each other's side the whole time. They really did not succumb to working at cross purposes. I really like the evolving tension between uh, the Baker and Kane characters to the war itself. Like, they both want command early on, and they both kind of big dog each other until until Baker finally gets it. And then the realization of getting what you want turning into a thing that you really, really don't want once those Zulus start coming. Like, uh <laughs> And then, like, they sort of play hot potato during the skirmishes itself. Like, Baker becomes wounded. Kane gets sort of a field promotion while he's injured. Neither of them necessarily want to be in this position. The position that they've advocated for early on at the shores of that bridge that, that Baker was building. The other factor, of course, is that Bromhead is a lieutenant of the infantry. So is a lieutenant specifically charged with fighting, mm-hmm. whereas Baker is an engineer. Yeah. And so w- probably would not be schooled in tactics and also, Bromhead, this is his command, this post, these men report to him. The sar- you know, Chard keeps saying, report to me. And the sergeant major kind of looks at Bromhead like, huh? <laughs> Bromhead's like, yes, you can report to him, or you should report to him. And all of that is, yeah, in these, in these war movies of this era, the unspoken character, the, you know, the elephant in the room is this sense of British organization and that somehow the whole operation is bigger than these people and they know it. You know, this is, this happened in master and commander too. The commander does have to enforce the rules, but everyone knows what the rules are and they, and they're afraid of the rules in a way. Right. Though we be on the far side of the world, this redoubt is England. And that's that was apparent through this whole film, too, that, you know, all that lost cause stuff where the soldiers were saying, why are we here? Why don't we just run? And the sergeant major's like, well, we have to stand because we're the ones that are here. And it was just like, ugh. <laughs> wow. You don't meet a lot of Gonvilles these days. I feel like that's that's a first name that's really uh, that's really gone out of style. Gonville Bromhead. <laughs> you don't meet a lot of Bromheads either. I guess so, yeah. Whatever happened to those Bromheads? They were so good at war for a long time. Well, you know, you don't meet a lot of Mick George Bundys either. <laughs> there's just a lot of, there's a lot of Aidens and Cadens now. Well, if, uh, if anybody out there is looking for a baby name, go for Gonville or Bromhead. I feel like Bromhead would be a good first name, right? How did you guys feel about the about the uh, shirker character, the malingerer? Uh, Henry Hook, you mean? I was actually about to bring that up because the goof that I wanted to highlight from IMDb is specifically about him. Henry Hook is unfairly portrayed in the film. He was virtually the complete opposite of the lazy, malingering con artist he was portrayed as. According to The Hook of Rourke's Drift by Barry C. Johnson, Hook became the most famous private soldier in the annals of the British Army. He was a modest and exemplary hero, and the producers originally intended to make him, or to make Hitch that character, but decided instead to use Hook's name. Wow, scandalous. 
Yeah, well, I mean, like, it makes it a more interesting character that he has this redemption. He sort of starts as a layabout who's in hospital for perhaps lying about needing to be in hospital. And then by the end, he's pretty heroically saved a bunch of people and bayoneted a bunch of Zulus. His character turn is less interesting to me because he has to do it instead of wants to do it. Like, he's going to die anyway when the Zulus come down the hill. To me, like, he doesn't really change his stripes because if he wants to live, he has to do this. It's sort of like, it's like a comment on his morality. You know, like, do you need an outside force or or can you achieve true morality, like, by yourself? To me, like, his character change comes about, like, through self-preservation and nothing more. It doesn't make him heroic to me in any way, even though, like, the real... The real guy is heroic. We don't know that when we watch the movie. Hook as portrayed in the film. I don't know. I don't really care about him. I didn't either for the same reason, right? I never saw I never saw something go off in his head where he was like, yeah. for England. Yeah. <laughs> the way that character was written and portrayed was very 60s. Mm. He's the kind of 60s anti-hero guy whose shirt collar is open down to the the chest and he's you know kind of violent and brutal a little bit like in the way of early james bond or of um cool hand luke but there's something pathological in him and that and he's meant as an anti-hero yeah and i think a 60s audience would watch that and as soon as he came on screen kind of sneering and like i don't even care about this war it felt like a precursor to um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest or something. Trouble was that? Could be. Is the worst job on this battlefield that of the orderlies? Like, you don't even get to carry a weapon. All you're doing is picking up dead bodies and, and carrying the injured to a completely overmatched surgeon. Like, the horror of that job... Seems like the worst thing. And you don't even get a red uniform. You're the worst looking guy out there with the worst possible job. The, just the heat of wearing that black uniform seems dreadful. Yeah. And I mean, like, I'm, I'm picturing the, these red coats as being wool, but then you, you make that black and you're just soaking up all the heat. Yeah. Oh, man. Although, again, my understanding uh, is incomplete but i think a lot of the times in situations like that the zulus were told kill everybody in a red coat mm. oh interesting and if you if you were wearing a non-red coat they might feel like oh well you're just a cook or something uh, there is a, there was a tremendous even maybe more than the british a tremendous sense of honor the honor of the warrior and honor of battle in Zulu culture at the time and all this sort of sense of how war should be conducted and a feeling that um, think certain things were unsporting. I don't think that, I mean, even the British and their, and their stiff upper lip, I think they were, the British were more likely to commit atrocities because of racism than the Zulus were. That idea of, like, war decorum is so incredible to me. Like, like putting a saddle on war or, like, turning war into a domestic animal like that. Like, 
it's insane to me to consider that this was such a going philosophy for so long. I wonder what the Zulus would have thought of the American colonists firing from the tree lines and and using what the British considered dishonorable battle tactics. Like, that's an interesting, uh, you know, comic book matchup. Yeah, right. Uh, you can yeah, that's that can be your fanfic. <laughs> but you know the 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 Zulu technique did involve using camouflage. It did involve sniping. Right. So. You know, that was sporting by their terms, you know, sneak up and then leap up the old sneak up, leap up. Yeah. Maybe their two styles of fighting would have been much more, uh, more commonly shared battlefield etiquette. I mean, some of the most striking parts of the film will be like the Zulus are standing in a line, you know, within firing range of the of the uh, British line and beating on their shields and, you know, every third guy will take a bullet and, and fall out of frame. And the, and the British are just standing there shooting while the Zulus are beating on their, on their shields. And it's like, it is so hard to wrap your head around being drilled up enough to be standing on that Zulu line going like, yeah, the guy standing next to me just caught one in the face, but I'm going to keep, beating on this shield like i'm i'm going to continue this psychological operation even though you know 20 of the 100 of us standing down here doing this are is are are now dead those shields are so beautiful did you have a shield in mind for yourself when you were watching this movie would you go with uh spotted cow or brown or black i think those are the choices that spotted cow look is real nice yeah, that was really popular in the 80s, too. <laughs> they also deployed the cow defense, though it wasn't intentional. Like, once the cows got loose, a lot of cow-related Zulu deaths in this film. I wouldn't have guessed that. Tell my family I, I died in battle, not of a cow-related injury. Oh, uh, yes, yes, friend, too, old chap. Sorry. That that life is cheap thing that you're talking about was so much a part of war from the very beginning of war to absolutely recent history only in world war one commanders finally realized that just throwing bodies at the enemy was no longer was no longer effective but if you think about Agincourt, like 40 years before that right oh yeah well yeah 50 19, yeah 1879 or something like that oh was it was it that late so post-civil war post-american civil war yeah 1879 so yeah still i mean the guys this would have been in living memory of world war one the, right. these people would have been in fact i think right bromhead and those guys were still in the army or or recently retired around world war one I mean, the Civil War was the same thing. You just send these guys marching toward each other and the guy next to you takes a bullet and the guy right takes a bullet and you just keep marching. And we can't envision it because it's so it's so against our everybody take cover and return fire style. And it's the I mean, we still are experiencing that argument today. It's the primary argument of drone warfare. It makes me wonder if that's how war is changing. How will the war movie change? in the decades to come too like what are the stories that we tell about that they're gonna be uh they're gonna be 
office dramas between colonels. <laughs> Want to go to lunch, Private Blue? Not till I take out the hospital. There's a fun story about how Michael Caine got his part in this film. Did you see that? This is Michael Caine's first big part, and he he introducing went, Michael Caine, I believe. You really want that introducing credit? That is a nice credit to have. His screen yeah. test went so poorly. That Cy Enfield, the director, was like, fuck this guy. Like, this guy is the worst. Go back to television soaps. But, like, the flight was leaving to Africa, and they still haven't, hadn't cast the role. They sort of took Michael Caine along as a best-of-what's-left kind of choice, and he ended wow. up killing it. He uh, does not play aristocrats that often, and it was very interesting to see him uh, in his first role, playing a a, a fancy lad, you get to hear uh, you get to hear Michael Caine's broken voice for the first time at the end, <laughs> <laughs> which is a real treat. <laughs> the horror, the horror. When Hannah and her sisters came out in the eighties, I was just then at the teenage years during the teenage years where I was seeing sort of adult films in the theater. Hannah and her sisters was a little bit sophisticated for me, but I was, but I considered myself a sophisticate at whatever age that would have been for me, 14, 15 in the world of Hannah and her sisters. Michael Caine is attractive. (laughs) He's attractive to these women. And to me at the time, Michael Caine seemed like impossibly unattractive. It was a big part of why I felt separate from the world. Michael Caine is what turned me into this monster I am today. Because (laughs) if the world thinks he's attractive, then it's the world that's crazy. (laughs) But when you look at him, when he enters the the frame in as Bromhead in this movie, he's so beautiful. Yeah. He's so fancy and so pretty. And all of a sudden I was like, ah, I see now, like for grown-up people, Michael Caine was a gorgeous actor. I guess maybe I should go watch Hannah and Her Sisters. Maybe I'm going to watch it and be like, he looks great, actually, <laughs> for a man his age. When I, when I saw him on screen about the Italian job, which he shot five years later, he is the Michael Caine I think of in that movie. Like, this might be the best he ever looked in anything. I don't know. It seems to me, if they ain't got you one way, they got you another. Well, do we have anything else we want to say about uh, the 1964 film Zulu before we put this one to bed? Did you like this movie? That might be a thing to discuss, whether or not we liked the film. I, I feel like most contemporary viewers who are politically conscious are going to turn on this film and in the first three minutes just by the ownership gaze of the camera that I think a lot of people would probably self-eject. There's so much in, in the beginning of this movie, so much to so much grist for that mill. I mean, the first time we see Bromhead, he's out just sort of sport shooting cheetahs. (laughs) I don't know there. I did like the film because of how much it made me think I don't think you can watch this movie just with your education in comp lit that you got in 2011, <laughs> right? Right. Like you, you have to be able to bring to bear 
a deeper kind of review. Yeah, I mean, for that reason, it's like it's as much an interesting document of the late 1870s as it is an interesting document of the 1960s. And I think if you can if you can watch it, like it's not a popcorn film. So if you can watch it on the I'm watching this to like learn something about where we were and where we are and also like admire the beautiful cinematography and look past the terrible sound design. Like it's, it's worth watching. (laughs) I like the movie a lot. And this was a real treat to see a film like this for the first time. Ben, was this the first time that you had seen this film? Yeah. I mean, like I'd seen little bits of it, um, played back during the day on channel 20 when I would like stay home sick from school. Uh, but uh yeah like i i hadn't sat down and watched it before so i was uh, i was pleased to get to do so the big takeaway for me from this film i had a few but i guess maybe the biggest was the idea of like to what degree futility is necessary for an action to qualify as brave hmm and by the end of the film i had decided that that was an essential part of bravery only because, you know, recency bias would indicate that, like, I had not seen another war movie where that was presented otherwise. But, like, the constant retreat, you know, past the wall of crackers, into the redoubt, into the into the cabin, you know, night falls. Like, you're just getting smaller and smaller and smaller, you know, shrinking in front of this giant horde. Well, I think that this is a movie that really believes in military training. I mean, they're they're so drilled up, like just walking back from where they're building the bridge to the compound, they, you know, form into a formation and march. Um, and, and I think that that kind of, you know, it's not just you, but the guy next to you that you're doing this for idea had not quite had all of the holes poked in it that the, that the sixties poked in it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> at this point in history, maybe. Or maybe just this filmmaker believed in it. Well, uh, do we have? Do we want to talk about who our guy was? Who's your guy, Adam? Uh, my guy is Gunnery Sergeant Mutton Chops. <laughs> and the reason I liked him quite a bit, the, I guess the thing about him that I identified with most was not his deep baritone of which I was extremely jealous. It was more the idea that inside a hellish conflict, he could carve out a bit of peace for himself. He was the guy who took care of the cow. And he was the guy who enjoyed singing and appreciated singing with other people. Like, it's sort of a prisoner's mentality. Like, in order to cope with a horrifying situation, you must erect a mental firewall you know, to save your soul in a situation like that. And I just really appreciated the way that he did that in in some small ways. Like, it didn't make him cowardly to care about a cow. You know, it didn't make him weak <laughs> to be interested in singing. It was just like a mental self-preservation thing that he did. And he was no less respected for it. Like, Like, the people loved him. And he was able to command some discipline from some very undisciplined people. So he's my guy. My guy was the surgeon 
it just kind of constantly doing surgery basically through the entire movie and the constant surgeon yeah every every time a window breaks near him or something he just kind of like moves his stuff over and keeps working he never um you know gets his hands out of the body long enough to distract himself with anything else and uh i admired that the battlefield surgeon is so often the most tragic figure it never gets any easier john did you have a guy yeah, my guy was the hysterical Calvinist Swedish drunk preacher. <laughs> I mean, that preacher was with his with his like insane anti-war rhetoric advocating, I don't know what, like like lay down and die because God will judge you if you fight. Obey the word, boy. Obey the Lord. The way we pick our next episode, as you guys well know, is that uh, John picks a random number. John, today we have a list with 53 films on it. You want to uh, toss out a random guess within that range? Um, Yes. Let's see. How about 64? (laughs) <laughs> that's uh outside the range john but uh <laughs> let's wait, let's try six you're okay the, you're the dart player that hits the wall outside of the <laughs> dartboard at the bar that's how you get kicked out oh man my uh bachelor party we we just swiss cheesed this guy's wall that at this house that we rented <laughs> oh you cheesed the wall felt so bad uh well uh the film you have selected john is a 1959 World War II film directed by Kon Ichikawa. It is Fire on the Plains. Oh, boy. It's a Japanese war film. This is John's. John, I want you to know that that I I studied film in college. I was a film studies major, uh, and I watched First Blood as a part of a class. I've never heard of this movie. (laughs) Yeah, well, you guys are in for the ride of your life here. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a Japanese World War II movie made in the fifties. It's, um, it's a perspective we don't normally see on the war. Let's put it that way. And the fact that, you know, that you watched first blood in film school is, it is indicative of the quality of American film studies courses. Not <laughs> well, well, How John, Adam, Adam did not go to film school. He uh, went to, he went to college and studied cinema. Yeah, that is a that is a very huge distinction made by people who actually do go to film school. Like, did that. you go to state, Adam? Is that what Ben is saying? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying I went to the Cadillac of film schools, and Adam just uh, took a couple of classes that were about watching movies. <laughs> <laughs> Truly, Ben got the El Dorado of film educations. <laughs> That's why I can't get work as a director anymore. <laughs> This film is not, uh, it's not in, like, let's just say it wouldn't have been at Blockbuster on the must-see shelf end. (laughs) This is not a a popcorn flick. If you go to a video store and this is like one of the favorites, like the staff favorite, uh, I think if you're an HR person... You'd, you'd like probably bring that person in for some counseling. Is that what you're saying? 
I feel like at Scarecrow Video, this might have been a staff pick, but it would would have been the staff pick by the uh, by the neckbeard guy who wants all of his <laughs> movies to make people really really unhappy. Yeah, I'm not going to okay. give away any more. I feel like people okay. should watch it. Looking forward to next week, John. <laughs> <laughs> the feel-good movie of the pod, it sounds like. It's yeah. an important film. Let's just leave it at that. I think it's good uh, that we're starting to have films come up that are not just American rah-rah films. And, a lot uh, of people call bad films important films. Is this a bad film, John? No, it's not. It's a, uh, you know, there's... Like, like the, take your medicine style film. Like, that, that's a type of film. This is not, well, let's see. It depends on what medicine you need. But, you know, this is a, like, Japanese cinema is a real creative force. And so this is a landmark in Japanese cinema. I think it will help. I think it will give us a different perspective on the on World War II because we tend to watch a lot of movies. Even Saving Private Ryan, we struggled with the way it was the way it was presented, and and you know a lot of the movies that we watch are very patriotic from our perspective. Certainly, the Japanese are are often hard to know in American films. So this will change your feeling about that. This is this film is available for free on YouTube, so uh, anybody can watch it. Well, yeah, YouTube. All right, well that'll be our next film, and we'll let Rob take it from here. Thanks, y'all. Friendly Fire is a MaximumFun.org podcast, hosted by Adam Pranica, Benjamin R. Harrison, and John Roderick. Produced by Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our logo art is by Nick Dittmore. If you'd like to continue the conversation online, please use the hashtag FriendlyFire. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR, Adam is at CutForTime, John is at John Roderick, and Rob is at Rob K. Schulte. Support the production of Friendly Fire by going to MaximumFun.org slash donate. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.